Hi, folks. Hi. I'm John Sealy Brown, and my colleague over here is Henry Jenkins. Let me officially introduce you, Henry. Thank Henry you. is the Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, and Cinematic Arts at USC, where he is seeking better ways to understand and create mechanisms for developed by groups to communicate social action and so on and so forth. Um, his case studies include Invisible Children, American Muslim Youth, Fan Activist and Harry Potter Alliance, and so on. All of these cases use popular texts such as Harry Potter, Buffy, Hunger Games, Superman, as vehicles for promoting social change. Um, we had some question of what the title of this talk was. By the time it got through all the um, mechanisms here, it became titled, Could This Be What Democracy Looks At? Remix and the Civic Imagination. Although I think when it started out, it was more like from cultural jamming to cultural acupuncture, from fan activism and the civic imagination. Actually, we'll see how both of these titles are apropos. Henry. Okay. So the suggestion was that I spend about 30 minutes really laying out some of the stuff from the research because it'll be less. The cases I'm looking at are not necessarily going to be familiar to an aspirant audience. And some of the underlying analysis will be maybe surprising or counterintuitive. And then we'll get into a conversation in this room, an informal one, because obviously we're the last legs and I appreciate everyone turning out. So in fall 2011, I went to New York to give a lecture at the New School of Social Research. And so as I was leaving my hotel, I was near the current location for Occupy Wall Street and I walked down the street just as a big bus pulled up and out poured a whole busload of zombies. <laughs> and I learned later that these zombies had come from a horror convention that was being held in New York at this, that weekend. And they had volunteered their time to go to the Occupy site and to participate in the protest. So surrounding the zombies were little old ladies out on a Saturday afternoon outing who were getting their selfies taken with the zombies, texting the message off to their friends, uh, their family, their grandkids, and having a really serious conversation with the zombies about why they were there, why they were dressed the way they were, and so forth. And this is just, to my mind, a really interesting example of the border crossing that took place around the Occupy movement. That moment where the fan became an activist, where the street theater became the basis for social media, and where all of that is in the service of what I would describe Occupy as a provocation more than a movement. What Occupy sought to do was change the discourse around wealth and equality in the United States to get us to think differently about the 1% and the 99%. And in that sense, I think Occupy was enormously successful by all measures in terms of shifting a conversation. And it was shifting the conversation by any media necessary. That this was one tactic among many. It only makes sense if we understand the sheer range of eclectic practices that Occupy deployed. Now this interested me for several reasons. One is I've spent a lot of my career studying fan communities and their relationship to popular culture. And I've long seen studying fans to be a generative space for thinking about social change, new media, cultural change, and so forth. They're early adapters of new technologies, new platforms, new practices. They're constantly seeking new ways to express their relationship. And they come at that borderline between mass media and participatory culture. Secondly, I was interesting because the MacArthur Foundation had appointed me to a research network that's on youth and participatory politics, multidisciplinary group that's looking at young people's political lives today through everything from massive survey, national surveys to closer ethnographic studies of particular groups and communities. And so I was about a year into the research at that point. Now, if I'd gone further into the park, as I did, I saw people dressed like characters from Game of Thrones holding signs that said Lannister 1% and the winter is coming, right? And so there was this kind of, kind of promiscuous mixing of genres and network. You know, HBO meets AMC right there in Washington Square. Uh, and that sort of mixing of cultural references is part of the message as well, that it's Occupy was a come as you are party, right? Come as you're, and connect with your favorite story, participate in your narrative, all in the service of making that one core message 
communicable to as many different publics as, we poss as they possibly could. And if I wandered further, if I looked at Occupy more generally, you see these practices and take a variety of other forms. Here's projected on the buildings on city halls around the, the country were these signs using the bat signal to signify Occupy is coming to the rescue. Or here's a favorite of mine, Occupy Sesame Street, 99% of the world's cookies are consumed by 1% of the monsters, right? And with this practice allowed things that were very local to spread very, very far. So if we think about pepper spray cop, this was a cop at the University of California Davis campus who pepper sprayed a group of peaceful protesters. Over the weekend, it happens on Saturday, by Monday, the New York Times is reporting more than 200 remixes of that image spreading across the country, again, reaching very, very different communities. So one of the, the title of the talk is, is this what democracy looks like, right? This is a set of images or icons for political change that might have seemed unfamiliar to earlier generations of protesters. Although as a set of practices, we could go back to the founding fathers who signed their documents with pseudonyms they took from classical Greek literature and cosplayed as Native Americans to dump tea in the Boston Harbor, right? So protest has long dealt with appropriating and remixing stories from elsewhere and performing identities of other people in the service of dramatizing their causes. But if we think about the shift of the relationship of protest to popular culture across the 20th century, we could see a number of notable points. The first here would be the 1930s. Uh, people have talked about the cultural front or the popular front. Culture work was a term of the period. Intellectuals were seeking to take messages about democracy and turn them into popular culture, whether we're talking about Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals, Norman Rockwell's paintings, Frank Capra's mo movies, Aaron Copeland's music. There is an attempt to popularize a set of ideas about American citizenship. This, for another generation, this is what democracy might have looked like. This is the counterculture of the 1960s, which uses the imagery of underground comics and rock music as kind of central tropes or ways of representing the disruption, the challenge that they're trying to pose, the desire to question authority and form new kinds of communities. We go forward in time. This is another moment uh, in the history of American protest. Here, the goal is to create alternative media to create a different communication structure, the indie media movement, which will get messages out and to disrupt, through practices called culture jamming, the functioning of the broadcast media. So culture jamming or ad busting, as it became known, was taking the power of Madison Avenue and transforming it into resources by offering counter messages. But the metaphor of culture jamming was to disrupt the flow. And it assumes a public that is permanently locked outside of the dominant communication channels of its time. Today, we're at a moment where because of new media, there's an unprecedented amount of communication power available to many people in our culture. I describe it as a more participatory culture because we want to continually acknowledge who doesn't have access to that power and the systemic and structural obstacles to using it. But we are seeing new communicative power represented by something like the pepper spray cop meme traveling across the culture. And I've done variants of these lectures all over the world. Pepper spray cop is known everywhere on the planet, right? And that's a and not predominantly through mass media circulation. So today, protest might look something like this. This is the Guy Fawkes mask that's deployed by Anonymous, later deployed by Occupy. And we could, this is a fascinating example because we can trace this back to protest in the UK over hundreds of years. It comes to today though because of Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, which has turned uh, into a film by the Warshawski siblings, which has then picked up by 4chan, which is one of the internet communities that has done a lot to generate memes, both positively and negatively, that then spread to Anonymous, then spread to Occupy. Now the paradox of that trajectory is that in the United States, Warner Brothers owns the copyright and trademark to the Guy Fawkes mask. So every Occupy protester who bought a Guy Fawkes mask to wear to the protest was putting money into a major multinational media conglomerate. And that tells us something about what it is to conduct speech in relation to culture in an era where copyright constrains what we can do with the central myths, narratives, and icons 
of our time. So this is a kind of central challenge for the groups that we're talking about. Now, in my last book, Spreadable Media, I really late, I, I go after the idea of viral media, which is a lot of people would describe pepper spray cop as viral media. Uh, the problem, I think, is that at a moment we've got un access to unprecedented communication power and we are learning how to use it both individually and as networks. We're using the language of infection and contagion, of irrationality, of things that are not explicable. The viral implies something, someone designed a killer virus and infects the host. They carry it back to the village and infects the entire population. The model of the viral takes away agency. And so what we're arguing for is another metaphor, an imperfect one we're calling spreadable. And we're using spreadable to stand in opposition to stickiness, where content is locked down. Our new motto is if it doesn't spread, it's dead. But if it doesn't circulate across the networks, it is not it's not going to reach its audience. It's not going to be a resource people are using. So that's a central thesis there. And we're talking about a shift from distribution to circulation. So distribution is the way media has traveled throughout most of the 20th century, dominated by corporate players who set timetables. So, all right, you, this show airs in the US. Let's say Doctor Who airs in Britain a week or two before it airs in the United States, Downton Abbey three months before it airs in the United States. On the other hand, the Avengers movie is now opening at the same time in Europe as in the United States. These are decisions of distribution. Circulation is this new system that's partially grassroots, that's shaped by individual players, that's shaped by decisions that circulate media illegally, if not legally, and that becomes the way messages travel through our culture. And that becomes a pipeline through which protest operates. So things like the Guy Fawkes mass travel through acts of circulation, get picked up consciously by a variety of players, deployed in a variety of ways, but in the service of political change. Maybe the most spectacular example of this process at work was CUNY 2012. And Invisible Children, which is an organization we've been studying for about five years, including well before CUNY 2012, had spent a decade building on the ground sports systems and schools and churches across America. They had a large following. But their estimate was that this video was going to reach half a million viewers over a two-month period of time based on their previous media releases. Instead, it reached 100 million viewers in a week. By comparison, the highest rated show on American television that week was Modern Family, reached 7 million viewers. The highest rated film in the box office that week was Hunger Games, reached 15 million viewers. You could add those together and multiply them four times over, and you still don't add up to the number of people who watched on YouTube a 30-minute video about child soldiering in Uganda. So by any model, that's a communication success. The success crushed the organization. Right? They, they did not have their information up ready for it. They expected a slower ramp up. So they were still building their website. The website crashed quickly in, as the influx took. Their telephone banks were occupied by press that wanted to respond to them. They were hit by criticism on all sides. The leader of the organization had a highly publicized nervous breakdown. The grassroots network community were ill-prepared to rebut or, or, refute the, or rebut the challenges being thrown at them by a variety of different directions. And they, were perceived, they made a lot of money and it went, it had gone and now suffer financial issues because of a boom and bust mentality, because people perceived them as having much greater wealth and power and influence than they did. So it's a fascinating example of how grassroots power is now reaching proportions none of us would ever imagine, but we are absolutely ill-prepared to deal with the after effects of those acts of communication. Now I'm interested in this organization that's much less well-known than Invisible Children, the Harry Potter Alliance started by, at the time, a 20-something trained community organizer, someone of the Saul Alinsky School, who went in and tried to work with fans to use them as a source of cultural and political power. What he said to me at one point was that he discovered that he wanted to get people talking about Darfur, and the media absolutely would not cover it, but every new Harry Potter book and every Harry Potter movie, was every possible aspect was covered for weeks. So if he attached Darfur to Harry Potter, the media would cover it, and indeed that's what happened. So he built up an organization that's now 100,000 young people in 62 organizations fighting human rights activism. As he puts it, this is a generation that learned to read by reading the Harry Potter books, that learned to write by writing Harry Potter fan fiction, 
and is now learning to change the world in the name of Harry Potter. Uh, he, he would say the book, which was written by a woman who had formerly worked for Amnesty International, J.K. Rowling, contains within it the story of evil in our times. The government is covering it up. Concentrated media is refusing to cover it. The schools are becoming increasingly repressive. And the students organize themselves and, and become Dumbledore's army and go out and change the world. So he says, what would, if we had Dumbledore's army in our world, what would that change look like? And he invites young people to be part of the process of deciding what evil to battle, what tactics to use, how to frame it. But the debates are framed through the language of Harry Potter. Now, why use these languages? Well, Ethan Zuckerman, who runs the Civic Media Center at MIT and who's part of our network, says, here's an ugly but plausible explanation for the shifting engagement in civics. It's not that people aren't interested in civics. They're simply not interested in feeling ineffectual or helpless. So we've interviewed more than 200 young activists in our research. Most of them said some variant of that the language of politics is exclusive, that you have to already be a policy wonk to understand what many political leaders are saying. It's designed to exclude, not to include. And that it's repulsive in that it's so shaped at the present time by partisan bickering <coughs> that it do, it's an ugly talk, that you don't want to speak the language of politics. And so they're looking for cultural metaphors, languages, stories by which to talk about politics that change the terrain, that encourage collaboration, consensus, that step outside of the, the institutions where politics has been conducted and seek politics through other means. We're calling some of this process the civic imagination. Now, the Institute for the Future recently issued a manifesto for a public imagination. And what they said is any democracy requiring a thriving public, requires a thriving public imagination where to make visible, shareable, and understandable to all people new ideas, new models, new potential policies. We cannot make any kind of collective decision unless the collective can understand what is at stake and envision where it might lead. What we're arguing, the civic imagination, is before you can change the world, you have to be able to envision alternatives, which is very, very difficult to do. Despite hearing at this conference a variety of calls for that, from Newt Gingrich to John Lewis, all advocating we've got to rethink the political process, it is difficult to get outside of Washington quagmire and imagine other ways forward. Before you can change the world, you also have to imagine yourself as a political agent who is capable of impacting the world. And so you need an heroic narrative you can attach yourself to that allows you to bring about change. And so something like Dumbledore's Army or the Guy Fawkes mask provide those heroic narratives that allow people to conceptualize change in a common way. And it, as this statement suggests, it has to be shareable. And so for this generation, the concepts of popular culture are shareable language. They're already part of their life world. They're already part of, you know, that, and they're using the tools that are the same places they trade cute cat pictures to change, call out political power. That, that, that bringing it into their social sphere makes sense in the context where this politics is taking place. So J.K. Rowling herself, speaking at Harvard at a graduation some years back, said, we do not need magic to change the world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. We have the power to imagine better. And the phrase imagine better does, says two things. We're, we've got to do a better job of imagining. And we have to imagine a better world. That those two things come together in that phrase. And it's a phrase that's been picked up by the Harry Potter Alliance as a way of describing their political agenda. Well, Harry Potter has come and gone. It still will be with this generation for a long time. So the Harry Potter Alliance, using the name Imagine Better, is attaching itself to a variety of other popular myths, including Hunger Games. And they released a very effective video this year that connected the concerns of Hunger Games to the agenda of Occupy, to the distribution of wealth, the breaking down of the social, social support system, uh, the, the prison and econ economic system, a number of topics, all of which they derive from looking closely at Hunger Games. And the symbol that starts out as a personal tribute uh, of Katniss to, to a fallen friend becomes, in the course of the Hunger Games narrative, a political symbol that's taken up by the society. And Imagine Better is trying to then use that as a symbol for young people who want to sign on to the concerns about wealth in America. And, and it's now being taken up by the union that supports fast food workers. So the Hunger Games logos will officially be on Happy Meals. 
and their labor will be using the symbol of the three-finger salute to challenge their, the same organization. Now, what's interesting is that this seems to be becoming not just something the Harry Potter Alliance has spread in the United States, but it's a global phenomenon. Indeed, talking to the leadership, they were shocked when they discovered that in Thailand, revolutionaries who are standing up against armed guards are using the three-finger salute as a shared generational symbol of political protest and upheaval. So this, this is one of many, many signs. That what we're describing here in the US popular imagination is a global phenomenon where young people find solidarity through social media and through uh, pop culture and are using that to build the base for a more widespread political movement. Now, somewhere in here, Malcolm Gladwell would like to be heard, I suspect. He, most <laughs> of you know the piece he wrote for The New Yorker, uh, which he sort of challenges the idea of Twitter revolutions. The first way in which he challenges is that he says that it lowers the risk, that young people are taking, doing politics online, not going on, crossing bridges, facing fire hoses and police dogs, and so forth. And I think the problem with that is it, it, it separates the idea of what's happening from online from what's happening in the everyday lives of people. So if we look at a relative, what many saw as a relatively trivial political gesture, turning your Facebook profile to the equal sign in support of marriage equality. Online, this looks relatively benign and relatively risk-free, but if you picture kids in Georgia, Mississippi, who put, change their Facebook profile on a platform that's gonna reach their parents, their grandparents, their church minister, their teachers, their principals, their classmates in a culture where homophobia still is very strong, the personal exchanges they faced in the hallway, at the shopping center, are very real encounters for them, and there are very real risks they faced in doing that. And that's simply the tip of the iceberg of a variety of examples. We, if we talk about dreamers, which I'll do in a minute, we'll hear the dreamers were young, undocumented youth who came out publicly on YouTube, who showed up at INS headquarters and announced they were undocumented, who in some cases have faced deportation from a president, being deported by a president who's deported more people than his pre Republican predecessor, they are taking very real risks that look like the risks taken by previous civil rights activists. They simply use a different set of communication channels to get the message across. Gladwell's second mistake in my mind is he confuses a, t a platform with a movement. So to talk about these as Twitter revolutions would be like talking about the telephone revolution of the 1950s, because he's comparing the civil rights movement with Twitter. Right, well, here we see Martin Luther King on the phone. We know he must have spent a lot of time on the phone talking to other black church leaders, freedom writers from the North. We have famous pictures of him talking to Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy. And then some of these calls were one-to-one, -one, but thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, probably were heard by a lot of other people. <laughs> right? uh, but so today, what we, what we are finding is not that Twitter is the whole of the movement. Twitter, as it was for the civil, or the telephone was of the civil rights movement, is one central technology that they're using to build their networks. Well, we see these young people as bringing about change by any media necessary, by using any and all available platforms in order to bring about political change. Uh, we I took this phrase, by any media necessary, from this group, Immediate Justice, which is training young women to make videos, telling their own stories in the name of reproductive help health and sexual freedom. It is a feminist organization, that, but it, and one of the first things they do with their young activists is train them to look, do an inventory of the media available to them. Is they say, if you've got a camera, you make a movie. If you've got a keyboard, you, you send the tweet. If you've got a phone, you take a picture. If you, you've got shoes and a t-shirt, you make a statement. But you're looking for the media that allows you to get your message out to people, and that will take whatever form is appropriate and accessible for the group at that given moment. So we're at a moment where digital has expanded the communication capacities, but it still exists alongside a variety of other media practices. Now, one of the questions I get is, oh, isn't this kind of one, taking too, a lack of empathy that forces young people to deal with Occupy through Hunger Games or Darfur through Harry Potter? Is this a kind of imaginary glaze we put over their eyes because they can't see to the real side? Well, what we're finding is that even those groups that look the most like traditional identity politics, like the dreamers, are in fact drawing on mythologies from popular culture to get their messages across. So we discovered Eric Horta, who blogs in the name El Random Hero, 
started a phenomenon of talking about being undocumented as aligned with the superhero mythology. Rick Perry had been outraged by a DC comic book that is in an alternative story, Superman renounced his American citizenship and said he would now fight for global democracy. And for Rick Perry, that seemed un-American. <laughs> Eric Horner, on the other hand, said, ask, when did Superman ever become an American citizen? <laughs> Right? If ever there was an illegal alien in the United States, it was Kal-El <laughs> from the planet Krypton, right? who slips across the border in the middle of the night, gets adopted by an Anglo family, lives and hides his true identity, and still goes out and makes a contribution to truth, justice, in the American way. And so that story became a language they use both to communicate among themselves. They talk about finding un un other undocumented people as discovering a new X-Men. Right? And they use that language to talk to other youth for whom that story may get them to think about the undocumented experience in a different way. And interestingly enough, Superman was created by two second-generation Jewish-American immigrants from Eastern Europe and was very much a metaphor from the very beginning about immigration. So they're recovering something in the story. Now what we also find is what are the pathway into politics? In traditional political science research, tells us that most young people's political identity is defined by about 16 or 17. You become political because your parents are political. You become political because you have an incredible social studies teacher who invites politicians in the classroom or gives extra credit to going to political meetings. You become political because you work on an after-school organization like newspaper, debate team, student government. You become political because you work for the volunteer organization. Those are predominant paths into political engagement. And the youth who have historically been most political had multiple of those paths that pushed them along the way. What we're discovering is today the schools are abdicating a lot of that responsibility. This is a civic missions in schools. A, a report some years back made this claim the best way to learn politics is to participate in democracy at the local level. And schools are terrified of that for all kinds of reasons right now. So here's Lauren Bird, who is a leader now in the Harry Potter Alliance, said, I wasn't terribly civically engaged when I was younger. I had some teachers who told us the importance of watching the news and being responsible citizens. And I followed that advice as best I could, but the contents of the news or just what being a responsible citizen meant were rarely discussed. I grew up in a suburb in Texas during the war on terrorism. You can guess the kind of ideologies most of my educators held. As I started realizing that I didn't agree with most of the things the culture around me preached, I quickly learned to stay silent and pretend I did. And I'm going to skip over the next part of the quote, but she goes on to describe this fact that it didn't work. The traditional route didn't work for her. She, on the other hand, was a Harry Potter fan. She learned how to make videos. She discovered what the HPA was doing on the internet. She got involved in a campaign to bring cargo supplies to Haiti after the disaster. The group raised four planes full of supplies and sent them to Haiti. Uh, and because of that, she became a video blogger for the Harry Potter Alliance. And now she works full time as, a, as one of the few paid staff members for the organization. And we heard those stories like that over and over again. The kids who were culturally active, learn, who, learn, who learned how to make videos recording skateboards, say, became politically active when the right organization came around. The right language invited them into the process where they were told stories that mattered to them as a gateway into politics. We found those paths were working for those kids. And we, we found many, many young people following those paths into civic engagement. So this is a very interesting, an interesting moment. Lauren is helping to head a, a protest against Warner Brothers, the company that produces the Harry Potter movies, around the, the use of fair trade chocolate. That Warner Brothers has contracts chocolate products for Orlando, its Orlando theme parks and elsewhere that do not bear a certification of fair trade, which means there's no way of verifying whether they were made with child sl slavery uh, or in, in the cocoa fields or not. And so the gr group of youth have been using every media necessary to call out Warner Brothers and to try to push it to change its policy. And the way they express it is, we are your fans. We are your consumers. We don't want to see you do this in Harry's name. The idea that children across America are eating chocolate produced by child slaves is repugnant. Right? That this just should not be acceptable. And chocolate carries mythic meaning in the world of Harry Potter. So for them, this was a symbolic battle but it came a way of educating their followers about fair trade, debates about labor practices, and so forth. Now, does this have an impact? Well, it's hard to judge, but one of the, one of the things we point to this summer 
is the success of The Fault in Our Stars, which was a bestseller, has now been one of the top box office successes of the year. The man John Green, who created it, also created with his brother Hank an organization called Nerd Fighters. Nerd Fighters is another fan activist group that has been incredibly successful in young people to do, involve themselves in campaigns, as they would put it, to decrease world suck. <laughs> this book is dedicated to a young woman named Esther. Esther was the bridge between the Nerd Fighters and the Harry Potter Alliance. She was a young girl who died of cancer who inspired both organizations. And so when we see this film, we are seeing Esther's story, which speaks in a powerful way to this generation. And there's a direct connection to be made back to the kind of fan activism I'm describing. I'm, I'm going to end by just recounting something I saw in the same building yesterday with John Lewis, who was a hero of mine, and I was deeply moved, as I'm sure some of you in the room were, hearing him tell the story of the civil rights movement. But there was a young African-American woman who stood up and asked him about politics for her generation and asked whether it made sense to run for political office. And there was just clearly this disconnect. You know, John Lewis said some really powerful things about the use of media, what they had achieved using mimeograph machines compared to the mobile and digital technology today, the potential for change. But he could not, having fought for voting rights and fought his way in the US House, he could not conceive of a politics that wasn't centered on representative government. And for this woman was asking this question very legitimately, is it possible to bring about any political change in the US Congress? Remembering that the last survey I saw, 7% of Americans believe that the Congress is making the world better. 7% has faith in the US Congress at this point, which makes it seem like a pretty profoundly broken system. We're talking to young, in our research, we're talking to young activists who are saying they're strategic non-voters. They're civically aware, they're politically engaged, they're using politics by every other means, and they've made a conscious decision not to vote. Because the vote forces them to direct their power toward people they think don't deserve their vote. That they can't vote for either party because their views are not being represented. And in any case, our, as part of the whole pushback on voting rights, many schools are discontinuing registering young voters. It becomes harder and harder for high school-age kids to register to vote, and so forth. So as I'm watching this exchange take place between these two very different worlds, we have to remember that Lewis also grew up in a world where cultural change had to be imagined through other mechanisms, through the black church, through, black, through various forms of cultural mechanisms, through social change, because the system wasn't working for them. And so what we're seeing right now is that young people are seeking change politics through other means, politics through cultural change, politics by directing attention at terms of services from internet companies that affect their ability to communicate with each other. The other kinds of mechanisms are seen as better ways forward. And we can debate at a place like Aspen whether that's the right way to think about the current moment or not, but I think we probably all feel to some degree the young woman's doubt that we're gonna see this kind of activism is likely to yield dramatic changes at a governmental level anytime soon. And so we've got to think of how we conduct politics that changes the world through every available media channel and by a variety of other mechanisms besides lobbying government. So on that I will end. <laughs> Fantastic. So let me just ask you two questions and we'll throw it open to the audience. It may be a little bit hard for many of us to understand um, the size of this kind of activism that is possible. I want to just speak briefly about, take Harry Potter. Um, can you give us some sense of the numbers of kids that are involved in actually reading and writing serious pieces of the uh, uh, Harry Potter backstories? Well, I mean, fan fiction online involves millions of kids. I mean, I started writing about fan fiction uh, 24 years ago, I think it was. Uh, at the time, I would go into one room after another, no one knew what I was talking about. Today, I see coverage of this in major news media, which don't even need to define the terms. So anyone who's worked around journalism knows that if they think the reader's not going to know what you're talking about it, the writer is going to be required to define its terms. All of the language from fan fiction writing is now going undefined in mainstream publications. So we are talking at this point of, no one can ask them to get a reliable count because we're talking about decentralized grassroots production that doesn't go through gatekeepers, but we are talking at the most conservative estimate of hundreds of millions of stories online written around pop culture many of them by young people, but also by adults. Uh, and many young people I've, I meet in my classes had at least some limited experience of writing that. So they're taking stories 
created by mass media and retelling them in their own terms as a way of connecting to, connecting to issues and life experiences that matter to them. Is it good? Well, some of it's great, some of it is crap. Whereas Theodore Sturgeon said 99% of everything is crap. What I think is most exciting about it is that so much of it is bad. Which may be, again, counterintuitive, but if we live in a world where all you see is the most polished works of mass media, there's no way you can conceive of yourself of getting to that level. We mask and hide all of the steps in the process. Right. We create a world where people can be bad and get better. And as you look at something and say, I could do better than that, let me try. And you create mechanisms of, of beta reading where more experienced fans help other people learn to improve their writing. Then you create a world where more people have the capacity to communicate. And the scaffolding that mass media characters provide allows you to focus on some aspects of the, the storytelling and ignore others in the short term. But it also means your stories connect with other people who are going to read them. So fan fiction has become a powerful way young people are learning how to write. And we're seeing it now spill over as they become adults into other aspects of their lives, including the kind of politics I'm talking about. So here. it is kind of a beautiful example of peer-based learning. Absolutely. It's, you know, I have very strong ties to the connected learning movement that MacArthur's launched. And they talk about how do we build bridges right. from uh, peer-based learning, from informal learning spaces outside of school that get valued in the classroom and that matter in the rest of the student's life. And I would say something like the Harry Potter Alliance, which they've used in some of their research as, as an example also, is a powerful example of how that, that process can work. So, so I also am very intrigued by this whole notion of the public imagination and civic imagination. And it's interesting to me that you see these kids picking up imaginary works in the fan fiction world as the vehicles which they then morph for this other imaginary purpose. Yeah, so we think of a, a fantasy as the escape from reality, but what they're doing is taking fantasy and directing it, using it as a lens to direct attention back on reality. Right. It's almost the exact opposite of what people imagine taking place within, within these fan communities. It's almost a game of, it's almost like judo in a funny sort of way. It is. It's taking the power of a mass corporation and using it to, to draw attention to causes that maybe corporation doesn't agree with. And again, this is a global phenomenon. Look at the use of Avatar by activists all over the planet. Most, the most famous incident, I think, took place in the Middle East where groups of Palestinians marched through the occupied territory chanting, Sky people, you can't take our land, dressed blue like the Navi from Avatar. This is a group that marched every week through the occupied territory, got tear gassed, put up videos on YouTube that no one watched. This one got millions of views all over the world. Major newspapers covered it. They covered it because we read, there was something odd about seeing a protest by the Palestinians in the name of James Cameron's avatar. And mass media used its power. That's, that's what the phrase cultural acupuncture means. It comes from Andrew Slack, the community organizer behind the Harry Potter Alliance, who says this is taking the pressure points of the society and using them to redirect circulation. Right? That's different from jamming the signal. Right? It's a diametrically an opposite theory of media communication from culture jamming. But it works from the same base of attaching yourself to what is highly visible in the culture and using it for your own political messages. Great. So let's throw it open to, um, to go, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks so much. This is great. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> my name is Larry Ottinger, and um, I'm interested in the uh, connections to voting. You mentioned John Lewis and um, this new uh, fan activism is targeting a lot of uh, corporate targets and cultural targets. Um, and I got a sense you were describing this as separate government. Well, that's just too far gone. We're just going to leave that one aside. And I, I want to push back on that a little bit and, and try to imagine uh, and a bridge to where reclaiming that democracy taking back that government, voting would be something that uh, activists could do? Yeah, well, I, sh I should be clear that we're in the book, the book I'm writing now, which I'm literally going back to the room at night and writing on because it's due at the end of the summer. <laughs> this book will be called By Any Media Necessary. The groups we look at are, are diverse, and some of them are deeply committed to voting and traditional institutional politics. So the Invisible Children trained lots of young people to go to Washington and lobby their congresspeople. Harry Potter alliances involved secretaries of state uh, or so under secretaries of state speaking on their fan podcast to their community. 
we've seen uh, American Muslim youth that we're looking at go to Washington through State Department visits. So there are interfaces with the government, but what we heard underlying it was a lot of pessimism that those are the ways the change is going to take place. The group that has done strategic non-voting are libertarians. And the libertarian youth we talk to feel that they've got to change the culture before libertarian messages are going to be heard. And we'll see Rand Paul try to turn that around, right? Rand Paul's appealing to them as a major constituency for his presidential campaign. And Rand Paul believes he can move them the way Obama moved minority youth to the ballot box. What we're hearing is they're not ready to be moved. And so it's going to, the next couple of years will be interesting to look at conservative or libertarian young voters as the Rand Paul campaign counts on them, really, as the core base of support for what it's trying to bring about as change. So that would be an interesting case to pay attention to. Now, we're seeing candidates do things that use the same language. You may have seen the, the Samuel Jackson, you know, wake the fuck up video in the last presidential election cycle, or Sarah Silverman's The Great Schlep, or um, Josh Whedon's, the, you know, claim that Mitt Romney will better prepare us for the zombie apocalypse, <laughs> right? We've also seen candidates use negative stuff. So John McCain's campaign had a, an ad campaign that talked about Obama as a celebrity, not a politician, and made fun of his young supporters because he wasn't ready to lead, but he was so, oh so dreamy. And after the elections, they ran a series of campaigns about breaking up with Obama on Facebook. Uh, you had me, he had me at change, it begins and it ends where you can keep the change and it describes it as a bad relationship. So we've seen the, the political structure try to adapt that language with varying degrees of success. It's already part of the larger political discourse. It's just that I don't think people are connecting all the dots in terms of what's going on there. Thanks. Yeah. Yes, woman in the back. I saw your yeah. urgent before. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. Uh, I only wanted to defend John Lewis by saying that he was here to promote a graphic novel. Yes, I think he's an amazing he, guy. He, yes, I mean, he wasn't he hasn't retreated into, he hasn't become ensconced in, in, in Congress to do nothing. I mean, he worked with this young man to do graphic novels. So. Yeah, so I, I think John Lewis is, as I said, one of my biggest heroes. You know, and I didn't, wouldn't mean to be picking on him at all. I thought it was an interesting moment of generational divide. But Lewis is crossing the divide with the graphic novel, which has had a huge impact. Uh, and I think uh, you're absolutely right to, to stress that. I, I don't think he could have seen, understood the young woman's question in any other way, though. And I don't think she understood all the history behind his response. And so that was a really interesting mo snapshot of where we are culturally. I understood that you were making a comment yeah. about that statement, yeah. but I just wanted to say in general. I totally agree. Uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm Steve Patrick. I run the Forum for Community Solutions here at the Aspen Institute. And I'm curious about hip-hop. You haven't mentioned it. You know, there's a long time where, especially for those of us who work on sort of pathways to opportunity for marginalized, disadvantaged youth and young adults, there's always been this hope that hip-hop could be a breakthrough moment around real social change, especially around economic justice. And there have been moments where you thought maybe, even, you know, there was a time when Queen Latifah sort of came out saying we just can't have this misogyny anymore and a whole bunch of hip-hop artists said if you're not down with Queen Latifah you're not down and then that kind of went away. There was an Eminem video that led people to the ballot box uh, uh, that tried to make the connection between culture. But are there things you're seeing? There are no examples. What are you seeing in the hip-hop No, I, I mean, I, I, I don't talk as much about hip-hop because it's in my world everyone else has talked about hip-hop, right? I mean, it is the powerful example but it's often represented as an exclusive example or as the only example for thinking about how involvement in popular culture leads to politics. It is an incredibly important language of political protest, both in the United States and around the world. I mean, the globalization of hip hop, the way it's been taken up by oppressed and marginalized people in countries all over the planet is a story where outside the US, it's not at all hard to find signs of major political movements that were framed by hip hoppers and hip hop discourse and hip hop aesthetic. In the United States, there's some really interesting symptoms. Kathy Cohen, who's looked specifically at black youth through political science at University of Chicago, finds that many, many more young black youth have involved themselves in boycotts than boycotts. That's another generational change, right? The boycott was the tool of the civil rights movement. For this generation, buying your own, supporting artists who speak out on causes is the major way in which their political speech 
gets expressed, and it's almost all bound up with hip-hop. So hip-hop has become the cultural political tool for young black youth and young Latino youth, young Arab American youth, all in the United States, Asian American youth, so forth. It is the language. What we're seeing is that that's not the only language. And it's not, and it's not just that young whites are turned to Harry Potter. The use of superheroes by dreamers suggests this is, these symbols are up for grabs for all kinds of groups who attach themselves to them if they speak to them. It doesn't have to be a black superhero for the black community to feel that there's something that says that's significant to them. They're taking the stories that matter and they're pulling them toward them in whatever ways they can. Yes, over there. They say that youth doesn't want to be part of a group anymore. They don't want to be part of the organized religions or a Democrat or a Republican. So do the politicians have to go to the youth through issues? And then if they could get them involved in an issue, then they could get them to vote on that issue? Well, it's interesting. I've been reading uh, Frederick, um, what is Fred, Fred, Frederick Turner's new book, The Democratic Surround, which is about culture in the post-war period, where there was a desire to create a collective identity as a, as a part of an American democracy that nevertheless celebrated diversity. This is a pretty good description of what we're seeing with the groups we're looking at. They're, they're, think about what I said about Occupy. Everyone found a different language, but they were speaking a shared discursive agenda. That is, they wanted to push a back on wealth inequality. What we're seeing is that in a world where everyone has access to, can that many young people have access to tools of cultural production and circulation, they're choosing to tell their own story in their own way, but often collective enterprises. So let's go to the dreamers, because it's the most interesting to me of this. These are, we found bloggers who didn't own their own computers, video makers who didn't own their own cameras, were using community centers and public libraries, were nevertheless were some of the most sophisticated tacticians for thinking about new media that, we, that I've ever encountered. And one of the tactics they had was simply having people point a camera at themselves and say, my name is Muhammad and I'm undocumented. You know, my name is Jose and I'm undocumented, and tell their story. And you see these five, three, four minute videos of young people talking about having their scholarships taken away, about not being able to travel across the country to go to a friend's wedding, about all kinds of things. Deeply personal, deeply individual, no one of which are getting more than 1,000 hits. It's not, a six, not the 100 million of CUNY 2012, but collectively, they're seen by an awful lot of people. And we've seen the needle shift in terms of people's commitment to the dreamers and to their cause as one of the major civil rights causes of our day. So this was a collective effort by individual voices. So what we're seeing is the organizations that are working for this generation allow lots of personal expression and shaping and framing the message and adapting the communication st standards, they allow those things to spread, like the, like the pepper spray cop memes, right? But they have mechanisms which allow them to develop a collective voice, a shared agenda, a shared belief structure that pulls them toward more traditional kinds of movement politics. So that's, that would be the way I would describe where things are at. Uh, you just one yeah. over here and then over there. Yeah. Nancy Pels Paget. I'm one of the people who runs the Aspen Education Policy Program, and I'm I'm two uh, not necessarily related questions, but I'm very interested in the the idea of how does at what point you think this becomes more the norm than the exception. So if you can collect a hundred million viewers, and I'm very interested in this concept of how does that translate into more participatory democratic activity uh, on the one hand. And then I want to pick up separately on your comment that this is a, uh, a original learning opportunity where people are beginning to write, but are they writing writing or are they writing expression? In other words, there is a set of norms about what makes for good writing, which I'm not, I'm not clear whether that's what you meant. So those are my two. All right, so, so all right, both, both interesting questions. Let me tackle the writing one and then get back to the larger one. What fan fiction does is construct an argument about a text. It, I think it does very good cultural interpretation that has to be, that fans are proposing different ways of reading the characters and have to provide supportive evidence to it. 
but it's done in the context of a story. So if you're using flashbacks, borrowed dialogue, and so forth to do it, the writing is a varying quality, but a lot of it is very good. But you are making an argument. You're making an argument. I, I have a strong, made a strong case that, a, that it's a form of argument, that it should be protected speech because it constitutes a form of argument that, and critical response, engagement with the work. Uh, the writing is varying degrees of quality, but there are mechanisms called beta reading where experienced writers give feedback. And the, fin the stuff that's regarded as good is good writing by any definition I would look at good creative writing. I mean, it's not an essay, although there are many fans who write essays, but it is much more likely to be a short story, but it's making an argument. So one of my other recent books, Reading in a Participatory Culture, tells the story of a guy named Ricardo Pitzwiley, who was an African-American educator who went into prisons and got young youth to read Moby Dick. And he got them to read Moby Dick by getting them to rewrite Moby Dick for the 21st century. So the whaling trade became the cocaine trade. <laughs> and the idea of a charismatic leader that you would follow to hell, but who's bent on personal b vengeance and not the business of, that he's supposed to be doing, how far does the gang follow him became the central question they asked about Moby Dick. So we took that and used that as a model to get teachers to use fan fiction writing around classic literary text in classes and had some really good results with it. So this is a tool we built for literature teachers to think about classic works in new ways. So I think there's an incredible amount of good writing instruction going on there, and I think there are things teachers can learn from it that does affect how we engage young people with, with the classic works. Um, and I've heard teachers doing it with Shakespeare or Jane Austen. Some of, you know, some of you may have seen the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is an incredible work that does Pride and Prejudice through social media. Uh, there's some really interesting things going on on the literature front. Now, I'm trying to remember exactly your question about the 100 million. Well, at what point this becomes less the alternative and more the centrist uh, way in which information, ideas, and activism is exchanged? All right, so there are two ways to answer that question. The first would be to look at the larger survey that the MacArthur Group has done on youth and participatory politics. At this point, the bad news is more than half of young people have done no political activity in the last 12 months. The good news is that within the, those who have, the overwhelming majority of them have done something through what we're describing as participatory politics. That is cultural remixing, spreading videos, posting on blogs, participating in online forums. Those are the tools. Those are not negatively related to institutional political participation. In fact, strong signs is if you do one of those things, you're likely to move toward behaviors like voting, petitioning, letters to editors, the traditional ways that politics have been conducted. The other good news is that those practices are almost even across the races. It's a 25-point divide between Latin Americans, which is the group that votes the least, and uh, or Latino Americans that votes the least, and African Americans are the group that votes the most. There's a five percentage point between the races in terms of participatory politics. So this looks like a way that will close the gap in terms of some of the racial politics in the United States. The other way to look at it is, all right, what's the, go to that 100 million that Invisible Children generated watching Cooney 2012. The general idea is that they got such pushback that they failed. And as I said, institutionally, the organization has crumpled in the face of it. They, you know, the next video they released got 4 million views in the first week. Now that's drop in the bucket compared to 100 million. It's huge advance compared to half a million over you know, eight times that length, which is what they've been projecting. They increased their followers significantly. Research shows that if you pass along a video, you're highly likely to make the next step of contributing money or time to that organization, right? It's not 100%. It's not, you know, pass along a video, save the world. It's that there's an incremental increase as people participate in these activities. It increases the likelihood they're gonna take the next step in terms of other forms of political participation. And so yeah, I think both of those tell us, and there's also, they've done two surveys on the participatory politics front, and they've seen 10 to 20% increases in individual behaviors over the last two years. So this is wi becoming widespread, as widespread as any kind of political behaviors on youth. It is increasing rapidly, it is cutting across races, and each act makes it more likely you're gonna take the next step. So I think those are some pretty compelling reasons to think we're rapidly moving to a point where these kinds of politics will be normative for this generation. And the question is, how will the older generation respond? Does this look like politics? 
you know, is this, can you accept that this is a form of political speech or does it seem to admire, you know, if, for the generations that fought back against corporate media to see this political speech in the language of corporate logos and popular narratives may be a hard step for people to take. And so there's gonna be a mismatch of languages that's gonna be a difficult thing to get over as this stuff starts to take, take shape. You and then. You, you answered that question. Oh, great, okay. Back, yeah. Oh, oh. sorry. How do you maintain the link with rationality, uh, critical acquisition of information? Uh, images have always been vehicles for ideologies, sometimes extremely dangerous. So how do we, can we avoid it? Uh, is there a way to moderate all this? Or is it all good? I, I'm not sure it's all good. I mean, I'm not saying that every use of a popular culture icon is gonna generate positive politics. And, and, I, and obviously what's good in politics depends in part on your, your ideology to begin with. I think there are plenty of ways in which this can be used that's emotionally manipulative, that's disruptive, that's hateful. There's certainly lots of pop culture icons used in hate speech in the US today that are deeply troubling to me and anyone else. So there's gonna to need to be ethics in this. There needs to be a engagement critically with the images that are being produced. And if we do this without a world of critical media literacies, we are in deep trouble. What the MacArthur survey found was 85% of young people asked for more help in learning how to decipher and critique the images that circulate around them. They know that they can't trust the media they're using and they're seeking help, but by and large, media literacy education is not provided in American schools. So that they're, they're and most, the same research is showing, most young people don't have an, an adult mentor who they go to to talk about issues in their online life, right? There's no one they can turn to who understands this media better than they do. So those are crisis points, right? I am optimistic, I, we describe ourselves in the book as cautiously optimistic. I think there's many of good, positive things here and I'm mostly bullish on what's taking place, but the questions you're pointing to are among the fundamental ones we have to look at. On the other hand, if we have politics that becomes a special event that you do once every four years, it isn't part of your lifestyle. If you politics that's all rational and doesn't have any passion behind it, you're also not gonna change the society. So we have to have the passion and the day-to-day -day interaction that this stuff represents in the political process or we get results that show that most Americans forget to go to the polls, at least in midterm elections, if not in presidential elections, there's no passion there. So I think, frightened as we may be historically of the role of passion in totalitarianism, we need more passion right now in American democracy or we're just gonna become so apathetic that no one votes. And I think that's, that's what I see as valuable in the turn to the popular as a language for expressing politics. So, go ahead, one last question, yeah. What I was struck by is that the, you know, the, the, the fiction that the, um, uh, young activists are using um, um, you know, as a, uh, a way of shorthand, right, of getting to the point, um, that fiction is based on that world, that the, the fictional world is based on the natural world and on real history. Have you found an interesting sort of correlate? Do, do the authors of the fiction uh, acknowledge um, the source? And have you found an interesting correlation between sort of the end sort of activist goal and sort of the original uh, inspiration? Well, I mean, I, 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 well, I've not heard interviews with the author of Hunger Games, but it, it's hard to believe that book wasn't written by someone with a deep knowledge of movement politics, right? If you read this book, it's a story of a revolution against a totalitarian regime using reality television as, its, as a starting point. And I think, and turning a bread and circuses government on its head by using the celebrity created by mass media access to challenge the establishment. As I said, J.K. Rowling worked for Amnesty International. So she, and her Harvard graduation speech spells out a theory of political change. So while much of cultural studies work that looked at appropriating pop culture, described it as resistant, so telling a, a homoerotic story about Kirk and Spock resists the dominant constructions of gender and sexuality on Star Trek, this isn't resistance, it's amplification. In most of these cases, they're taking stories that are already political Although we work really hard to pretend that young people don't, don't care about politics. So if it's a young adult novel, we assume it's not political. We assume, you know, if it's a children's book, we assume it's not political. But the reality is there's a whole history of 
activists using those media to tell stories that change, that change people's thinking about democratic citizenship. And that's what's going on here. That these are books that already tell those stories, but young people are realizing the potentials within them and using them for change. And, they, and what's fascinating to me at the Superman story is they're doing it across 70 years. Right? In the 1930s, that was a story about progressive politics in Superman. Keep in mind, Superman was not always truth, justice, in the American way. He was originally described as champion of the oppressed. Right? He was a very political figure in the 30s. But, and they've gone back that far and read from the text at political beliefs of the people who created it and have used that as a springboard for their movement. It suggests they're very good readers, that, this, that when you embed meaning in text, it's there to be mined, that we may take it in directions you don't anticipate, but it's not that all the meaning's thrown out and we just make stuff up. It's that there's a dialogue between readers and text that results in these kinds of cultural and political movements that I've been studying. Okay, with that, thank you very much.